earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today's part eight in the series, This Means War, as we continue our sober look at spiritual warfare and develop a spiritual warfare primer. Remember, the podcasts can be found at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Today's title is Set Your Mind on Things Above. We've been expanding on the believer's weaponry in Ephesians 6 that Paul is elaborating on. Today's focus being on verse 17, Take the Helmet of Salvation. But before we unpack verse 17, I'd like to refer to a book by Daniel Bauman called Dare to Believe. Written in 1977, Bauman captures the unique experience of knowing something is ours, yet longing to enjoy it more fully. So he shares his own experience during Christmas that his favorite thing to do was snoop around and find his present and then try to figure out what was in the package. One particular year, he hunted down a package with his name on it and was so easy to identify. He thought to himself, there's no obvious or easy way to disguise golf clubs. Well, when his mother wasn't around, Dan would go over to the wrapped clubs, swing the package, and make believe that he was on the golf course. In reflecting back on that experience, Dan said, I was already enjoying the pleasures of a future event namely the unveiling. It had my name on it. I knew what it was, but only Christmas Day would reveal it in its fullness. Friends, Dan Bauman's experience is a perfect parallel picture for us true Christ followers in our experience of personal salvation. All of us were saved at some point in the past, some more distant than others, obviously, And presently we are experiencing a measure of that salvation, right? Yet what we're really looking forward to is our glorious future, aren't we? A future when we'll enjoy the fullness or the totality of our salvation. Sometimes I feel like I'm salivating for that future. Sometimes I can almost taste it. Can't you? I think Paul must have felt the same way when he said in Romans 8.23, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Or perhaps 2 Corinthians 5.5 in a less familiar translation that puts it, He who formed us with this very end in view is God, who has given us his Spirit as a pledge and foretaste of that bliss. The NIV has as the tail end of that verse, God has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 
It's quite interesting, friends, that the New Testament pictures our salvation in three phases simultaneously, as past, present, and future, while we're living now. In other words, as a past experience, a present experience, and as a future experience. The scriptures say it this way, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. As odd as that may sound. And friends, let me illustrate this from a few actual scripture passages, ones that are probably familiar to most of us, but perhaps we've never really thought of them from this particular perspective before. Take Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ah, you say, I know this verse, but I'll bet you haven't really caught how the tenses illuminate us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, friends, here Paul is referring back to the time when those whom he is writing received Jesus Christ as their Savior. Just take a moment and think back to your own past, when you received Jesus as your Savior. I might ask, how many of you have been saved? How many of you can point back to that time or season when you personally received Jesus? Perhaps some of you can even point back to a specific date or day when you personalized your belief and trust in him. Next, take 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice, friends, this is not just a past recollection, but a present reality. Third and lastly, future salvation is best pictured in Romans 8, 18-25. In other words, future realization. Here Paul gives us a glimpse of future salvation and begins by making a connection to the creation which was adversely affected by our fall into sin in the garden. So here's Romans 8, 18-25. For I, and this is Paul talking, Consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but we ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance, we wait eagerly or patiently for it. Now, friends, this idea of past, present, and future salvation is extremely important if we're going to understand and correctly interpret the spiritual metaphor and meaning behind the helmet of salvation. Paul points to in Ephesians 6, verse 17, the piece of armor we're up to in our sober look at spiritual warfare. So as we investigate verse 17, let's do our own snooping, so to speak, and unwrap this particular piece of armor to discover the spiritual truth Paul wants us to find. 
But remember now, in each session we're reading the full contexts, so we don't fall prey to thinking all we need is one piece of the armor to get us through. So, here's Paul's presentation of the full armor of God in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, in another respected translation. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you are able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist when the times are evil and after you have done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, then. Buckle the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. Strap up your feet in readiness with the good news of shalom or peace. Above all, take up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit on every occasion with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, keep alert with perseverance and supplications for all the saints or God's holy people. And pray for me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the good news, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may speak boldly the way I should. Now, friends, the helmet of salvation just happens to be mentioned twice in the New Testament, both times by Paul, the second occurrence being 1 Thessalonians 5.8, with an important addition. So let's check that verse out. But since we are of the day, let us be sober-minded, putting on the breastplate of faithfulness and love and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, I believe the addition of salvation being referred to as the hope of salvation furnishes a clue to properly interpret what this helmet stands for. So, just what does Paul have in mind? What might the spiritual parallel be that the Holy Spirit has inspired him to direct his attention to? Well, friends, I propose that Paul himself provides us with the interpretation by what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, namely that our perception of salvation needs to be governed by the hope of salvation. In other words, the piece of our armor referred to as the helmet of salvation now becomes the helmet of the hope of salvation. So, friends, every time we put on our helmet, we're putting on a special kind of hope. Now, don't let our word hope throw you off. Too many of us think that the Bible use, uses hope equally to our human use of the word hope, which is absolutely wrong. I recently had an interesting and fulfilling discussion with a friend whose perception of hope was understood to be like a wish. In other words, hoping that something will happen or come true, but not knowing for sure. Now, we've all done this at one time or another, haven't we, friends? We don't know for sure or can predict if a particular thing or wish will come true, but we hope for it to come true. And we're happy when it does. Sometimes we're ecstatic. And conversely, we're sad or disappointed when it doesn't come true. 
But as Christians, we've got to be careful we don't look at salvation this way. We've got to be careful we don't import the human or worldly definition of hope into our Bibles or our minds. You see, friends, the helmet of salvation is designed to protect our minds, our thinking processes. That's why I've named today's installment, Set Your Mind on Things Above. We who know, love, and follow Jesus cannot allow our minds to be plagued with thoughts like, I hope I'm going to heaven. We must not allow those flaming arrows of the enemy to be shot into our minds. That hope then functions just like a wish. You know, I wish I'm going to be in heaven. But today I'm here to tell you, friends, that the Bible trumps wishful thinking when it comes to understanding our salvation. The Bible's use of hope is a certainty, not a wish or wishful thinking. This is why the Apostle Paul's perspective in 1 Thessalonians 5.8 is so helpful. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul expands the phrase to the hope of salvation and communicates the sense of a certain future hope that we are confidently awaiting. Confidently, because we are 100% certain that it's coming. There's absolutely no doubt, no uncertainty at all. Friends, it's also very interesting that an affirmation and a confirmation of this truth is found in the words of the Apostle Peter in his letter we call First Peter. So listen and let these words invade and occupy your mind, impact your thinking processes, begin to actively put on the helmet of salvation, which is really the helmet of the hope of salvation designed to protect your mind. In 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Peter says, Praise or speak well of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope. Get that! Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of our salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter goes on to say then, Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, friends, if we were to check our hope pulse, what would it read? In other words, how is our hope system doing? Is our hope beating strong enough to bounce back if it gets hit? Do situations cause us to doubt and lose hope? Now, friends, let's be honest. There are times we struggle with finding and holding on to hope, but our loving and gracious God knows we do. Friends, even the best of us, and I mean by that those of us who may be mature in the faith, find that at times it's a challenge to grasp and hold on to hope. But we have an incredible source of hope, don't we? Refreshment and encouragement springs like a well from both our Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, offering us hope again and again. Friends, I'll even contend that if we limit the piece of armor known as the sword of the Spirit or the Word of God to only an offensive weapon to do battle against the wiles of our enemy, we're not making full use of God's Word. 
The word of God must be more fully used, friends. We must take hold of it to do battle against the unreliability of our own emotions. Our emotions or our feelings are a part of our soulical nature. Our soul is the seat of our emotions. So, while the helmet of salvation guards our minds, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, guards our souls, our emotions. And believe it or not, friends, the Word of God does both. It serves to protect our mind, and it serves to protect our emotions. Think back for a moment to Jesus' own challenge time in the Garden of Gethsemane, the precursor to him getting arrested and the domino effect that ensues. In Matthew 26, the portion where Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane is recorded, we find Jesus saying to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Just moments later, Jesus falls with his face to the ground. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever done that? Jesus then prays to his father, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Friends, someone once said, Our emotions were made by God, and these too must bow before him. Well, I hope you can see now, friends, that the individual pieces of armor elaborated on by Paul cannot and will not function adequately all by themselves. They must all be used together. This is why Paul says more than once, put on the full armor of God. And friends, I'm just going to take a short side road here for a moment. As we reflect on Jesus' time in the garden that we just read, notice that after admitting that his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said, stay here and keep watch with me. Now, we could easily just steamroll right past this statement and miss the incredible truth revealed here. And amazingly, this truth piggybacks onto our subject of spiritual warfare. I've mentioned several times that the Roman military practices of the first century aid in our understanding of the spiritual parallels that Paul makes us privy to. The Roman army rarely went out with one soldier... In fact, the Roman military had several names or categories for their armies. For example, a centurion commanded a hundred soldiers. Centurion coming from the Latin word for one hundred, or century. At the crucifixion of Jesus, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four records a centurion and those who are with him guarding Jesus. In Acts 10, we learn of a man who was named Cornelius, who was a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. The largest contingent in the Roman army was made up of groups of soldiers called legions. There could be over 5,000 soldiers in a legion. The actual number varied a little, and generally a legion consisted of around 6,500 men, of whom 5,300 to 5,500 would be soldiers. Probably our greatest familiarity with the term legion, however, comes from the gospel accounts of a man roaming around in the country of the Gerizines who was possessed by demons and the encounter he had with Jesus. The fullest account is in Mark's gospel, chapter 5. You remember that story, right? Remember when Jesus asked the demon his name and the demon replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
Imagine exercising over 5,000 demons from a person. All of this to say, friends, that as Christ followers, we shouldn't be so proud to think that we can do battle alone. Christ's church is a body, and as a body we must work, serve, and battle together. We make ourselves the perfect prey when we wander out alone, or think we can function like a lone ranger. Friends, there can be no lone rangers in the body of Christ. Getting back to Jesus in the garden, at a most crucial time of suffering emotional anguish, he asked his closest friends to stay with him, watch and pray. Christian fellowship in our generation has sadly deteriorated into coffee shop chats, gatherings that are just chit-chats with no real substance, and hanging around with friends but including no spiritual elements to build each other up or demonstrate true concern for other brothers and sisters. It's high time, friends. We seek to recreate and live out what Acts 2, 42-44 inform us. It's high time we begin devoting ourselves to good, solid teaching, fellowship, meal-sharing, and prayer as a four-pronged endeavor to demonstrate our common values, common beliefs, and common mission. Acts 2, 46 and 47 pick up where these verses leave off, declaring that the disciples of Jesus continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, worshiping and praising God. And this didn't become a mere Christian club either, because the verse continues by saying, The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In other words, they didn't let their fellowship become ingrown. They boldly shared their faith and led others to find Jesus as their Messiah, Savior, and Lord. Friends, I don't know how to get this point across any stronger than to say that true biblical fellowship is incredibly significant because it includes each one of us coming alongside our brothers and sisters and being there in their time of need. Well, friends, spiritual warfare is just another element in our coming alongside each other in battling against our enemy, the devil, and his demon forces. God forbid we should attempt this alone. After all, the enemy of our soul loves searching for those who've abandoned the flock to do their own thing, their own way, and in their own strength. You can be sure this is a recipe for disaster. Just recall 1 Peter 5, 8, which we've mentioned before. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Now pay attention to this next line, friends looking for someone, in other words, some individual to devour. So, friends, whether we're in community with others or occasionally by ourselves, we must make sure we're wearing the full armor of God. Our special focus today being the helmet of salvation in Ephesians 6.17, or more elaborately, the hope of salvation as a helmet, per 1 Thessalonians 5.8. The helmet is one piece of our warfare wardrobe and must be worn together with all the other parts. Then and only then can we consider ourselves dressed for battle. Author and teacher Hank Hanegraaff in his book The Covering said, When the denizens of darkness land their most devastating blows, the helmet of salvation guards our minds and grants us perspective. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of our program. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. 
I truly appreciate those of you who write in and share your feedback on particular programs that have impacted you in some way. A listener recently wrote in regarding Part 5, The Heart of the Matter, our look at the breastplate of righteousness with, I just finished listening to your word from the word. Loved it. I do like how you talked about using the breastplate of righteousness, but how you brought it up to modern day armor or Kevlar. I also absolutely love the book, The Screwtape Letters. I remember it to this day. Thank you so much for your teaching. As usual, it's been interesting, enlightening, and entertaining. May God continue to bless all who listen to your words. Well, thanks for your encouraging comments. And remember, friends, podcasts of A Word from the Word are accessible at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And keep in mind, friends, that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. If it's a blessing to you, please join the support team, especially now during these challenging financial times. Your faithful support keeps this program on the air. Just email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the word friends if you would like to let pastor tom know what this program has meant to you email him at a word from the word at minister.com that's a word from the word at minister.com